Welcome to this new episode of my podcast, A Digital Tomorrow. Today, I'm joined by Danny Russell from the Bank of England. Thank you, Danny, for coming to this podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Well, uh, Danny Russell uh, is a senior enterprise architect and principal technology advisor to the Bank of England for CBDC. Previously, he was director for product for crypto, digital currencies and blockchain globally at FIS. So, once again, Danny, welcome. Thank we are going to start. Very, very we're going to start like um, today, going through some uh, topics. It's actually fascinating, no, to have uh, someone from the Bank of England uh, joining me today. So, I think we should start like from the very beginning, because even though the Bank of England is, of course, uh, very famous, um, well, some of my listeners are like from uh, parts uh, far away in the world. So, I would like to to ask you if it would be possible for you to let our listeners know, uh, well, a bit more about the Bank of England, no? I mean, what it is, when it was created, like some general ideas about it. Yeah, so the uh, Bank of England being, was created in 1694. So we're not quite the oldest central bank in the world. The Riks Bank in Sweden just pips us uh, in their 1668. But um, we are, despite the the name, we are the uh, central bank for all of the United Kingdom of, of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. So uh, we've been we've been on our current uh, site in London on Threadneedle Street, ironically, on top of the uh, the bank tube station, uh, for obvious reasons. We've been there for 1734 and, and have the affectionate nickname of the, the old lady of uh, Threadneedle Street. Um, so our, the Bank of England's mission is to promote the good of the people of the United Kingdom through uh, promoting financial and monetary stability. Um, and the range of stuff that the Bank of England does is actually quite incredible, right? So there's the stuff that everybody has heard of. So, you know, doing the ensuring monetary stability by setting interest rates for the United Kingdom. Um, we do, we issue banknotes, uh, but ironically not coins. That's the Royal Mint for the United Kingdom. Um, one of us, we also have one of our divisions is the Prudential Regulatory Authority, who regulate 1,500 banks and insurance firms and building societies around the UK. Um, but we're also the second largest custodian of gold in the world, with about 400,000 uh, bars after the New York Fed. And on top of all of that, uh, we operate two uh, payment systems. So CHAPS, which is the UK is a high value retail payment system. So what you'd use to do um, uh, house purchases or, or big transactions. And that clears about 367 billion pounds a day on an average day. Um, and then we also have the RTGS, the real time gross settlement system, which is the ultimate uh, clearing house for pretty much all payments in the UK. Um, and that goes through uh, three, that covers about uh, 750 billion pounds a day. Um, but I guess the thing we're here to talk about today is in conjunction with Her Majesty's Treasury, we're also investigating whether or not the UK should launch a, a CBDC. Yes, um, well, that's right. I mean, thank you very much for this uh, general introduction. And of course, uh, uh, talking about uh, whether or not the UK should launch a CBDC digital pound is, of course, going to be a key pillar of our uh, discussion uh, today. But before uh, moving forward to the CBDC part, well, I wanted to ask you like um, about uh, fintech and the Bank of England. Uh, for example, uh, the Bank of England created this lab that uh, fosters innovation uh, within uh, its own uh, walls. Uh, 
including, for example, this uh, important initiative known as uh, the FinTech Accelerator uh, Program. Uh, could you please summarize uh, this initiative? Yeah, of course. So the FinTech Accelerator was set up in 2016. Um, it ran for two years. It was only meant to run for those two years. And it was designed to improve our familiarity with FinTech services, um, understand their strengths and weaknesses. So one of the things we look to do is we look to understand these, um, these innovations, both from a how can they help us in our role, but also how can we'll do these um, investigations in order to help us understand firms that we have to regulate or issues that we have to, to manage and control. Um, during those two years, uh, the Accelerator undertook 13 proof of concepts with 14 odd firms. So uh, they're chosen through a, an open competitive kind of process. Um, and then those kind of those firms are brought in, they worked with the bank subject matter experts, they explored, um, they, they did investigations, they did an, uh, analysis and experiments. And then most importantly, um, all of those results and all those reports were published on the bank's website and they're still up there today if you look for uh, fintech POCs. Those POCs covered lots of things from uh, distributed ledger technology and how we'd use that in to improve the real-time growth settlement system that uh, I mentioned earlier, um, as well as reg tech and machine learning uh, and cybersecurity. Based on the success of that fintech accelerator, it's being moved a permanent fintech hub has been set up um, in the bank from March 2018. Um, and it's just a way of bringing everything together and taking those processes that we learned through the FinTech Accelerator. And now we have this ready-made um, process for launching more future proof of concept should we want to do stuff and something we're still doing around, say, uh, digital regulatory reporting of some of the banks in the UK as well. Um, but that process is something we can look at and, and something we may choose to use for investigating CBDC concepts as they, as they come up. Mm -hmm. uh, you just mentioned uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence. Actually, the International Monetary Fund uh, recently examined uh, artificial intelligence use cases in, in fintech and banking. And as, as we spoke, the Bank of England is at the forefront of this. Uh, for example, to the point that the Bank of England revealed uh, during the fintech and insurtech uh, live event that uh, it presently employs artificial intelligence for uh, forecasting and obtaining uh, real-time uh, insights. So uh, what are the main uh, advantages uh, and risks as well of uh, using these uh, cutting-edge uh, technologies like uh, artificial intelligence or uh, machine learning? Yeah, so it's a, it's a great question. So I think machine learning, artificial intelligence has tremendous potential. I mean, we saw uh, within the UK, one uh, UK bank deployed uh, machine learning artificial intelligence, and they reduced their false positives on AML by 70%, right, which is great, because that means less payments erroneously blocked, freeing up more resources to actually investigate the actual, you know, the real issues we've got there as well. Um, AML and machine learning can help scale those problems, right? It can help scale those processes around the, around the whole economy, which is something I think that has tremendous potential. But they also carry risks, right? We know that you know, AI models perform badly when they, realize they, when they come across a scenario that they haven't seen before, right? Um, and then over time, you can get model drift as they kind of move away from their original uh, data as well. Um, and obviously, we have spoken before about, um, you know, uh, sorry, encompassing biases in the training data. There's lots of, you know, lots of studies about how that can happen. And even in examples such as 
um, the some app, like things like the Apple Pay and, and Goldman Sachs credit limits. Um, the New York kind of uh, state, when they looked into that, they found actually that um, even though the models weren't biased, they weren't looking at things like gender. They, you know, the models actually had kind of confirmed existing biases that were in the training data. And so that's something you really have to be aware of and something that um, you have to guard against. And one of the ways that firms guard against that is adding the so-called human in the loop so that humans are authorizing those decisions. They can, they can take a bit more, they're aware of context, they can utilize that in decisions. And I think you also need to give people um, the right to challenge those decisions when they've had it against an automated uh, decision and also understand what was the factors that influenced those decisions as well, right? You can't just have um, the computer says no to quite a British comedy, uh, comedy show. Well, um, thank you. Uh... Oh, sorry, sorry, oh, sorry, I forgot to mention as well. One of the things we are on that we're really proud about is mm -hmm. we have done our AI uh, public-private forum with the FCA. So um, we have been working on that for a number of years and the forum has been going for a year. Uh, and we are just about to publish our report, which will have a lot of details on recommendations and also how to manage risks for AI. So that will be uh, published very, very shortly. So keep an eye out for that. Okay, we will definitely. Um, well, now that we've covered um, what uh, the Bank of England is doing on the area of fintech in general, artificial intelligence, I think it's the right time to talk about uh, CBDCs and the digital pound. Uh, I actually find uh, CBDCs uh, to be a fascinating uh, topic. I, I'm a um, co-leader of the uh, CBDC and blockchain, a working group at the Global Impact Fintech Forum. I'm teaching the courses on CBDCs uh, in London at the CFTE. Uh, so it's a topic on which I've been um, doing a uh, lot of research and writing a lot, especially from an Asian perspective, but of course also from a European one. So I wanted to ask you, like, uh, could you please tell our listeners uh, what is the current status of uh, UK's uh, CBDC digital pound? And also, uh, if eventually launched, uh, when would that be? Yeah, so it's a fascinating topic. And uh, next time in London, definitely let me know that for that, for that course. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a totally fascinating topic. I mean, that was the reason, you know, as you mentioned earlier, I was working in the kind of crypto stablecoin space, but the opportunity to come to the Bank of England, which obviously is, you know, central bank from the largest economies in the world and try and define the next currency of the UK and, and really start to kind of pick out what is the meaning and the future of money. It's, it's a con it's a, it was a challenge that I couldn't uh, say no to and something I find incredibly fascinating. Um, within the bank, though, we've been on a multi-year journey for this. It's not something that we're, we're going to, to rush. Um, we launched our, uh, there was some, you know, some staff working papers from thinking back to 17, even 16, I think. But we, where it really kind of started was we launched our first discussion paper last uh, 2020, sorry, obviously just in January, but my last year's wrong there, uh, in 2020. Um, and that was very widely received by industry. Um, I was in industry at the time, so I couldn't say how that kind of was received as well. Um, we then, in, again, the second half of, of last year released uh, our second discussion paper, which was on the future forms of money, again, investigating how CBDC and stable coins differ and how they could potentially um, work together. Uh, but I guess, you know, going forward to what we're here to talk about today, um, we've committed to, to launch our consultation paper uh, this year, which will investigate 
the case for launching a, a UK stable coin. And we'll also then look at uh, if that if we do do that, what is the operational and technical models that we would consider and how we would invest see that um, going ahead. And then should we go and release out to industry and when uh, we got some feedback back and if the case therefore goes to actually proceed with a CBDC, we'll then we'll then uh, write a technical specification, uh, which I guess we well, we're keeping me busy and, and sleepless for many of those nights there. Um, and then after that, should everything go uh, according to plan and, and the decision is taken to launch a CBDC, uh, we'd be looking, what we've committed it to is it won't happen um, no earlier than the second half of this decade. So like I said, it's, it's, it's not something where Russian will make sure we get it, we get it right. I mean, it makes perfect sense to me. Uh, launching a CBDC takes uh, years. No, I mean, it's a process that requires uh, not just a lot of technical preparation, but also, um, uh, well, a deep study on monetary policy and other issues because uh, a CBDC affects like the very core no, of a, of a country's uh, financial system. So that's why uh, it makes uh, perfect sense what you just uh, mentioned. Uh, moving forward, I mean, we all know that CBDCs have advantages, but they may also uh, pose uh, threats or at least have certain uh, risks. So uh, what would be to you the main advantages of a digital pound and also the main uh, risks and challenges? Yeah, so, you know, one of the main the main advantages, obviously, there's, there's payment resilience. There's one of the things that we're looking at when it comes to central bank digital currency is not just how do we meet the needs of the economy today? You can look at the United Kingdom economy and say, actually, it's pretty well served with payments. We've got faster payments. We've got a Visa and MasterCard and all the other card schemes, and, and it's quite a vibrant fintech ecosystem. But it's also looking forward to how do we meet the requirements of the tomorrow's economy, right? How do we meet and which is, you know, how do we support a more innovative economy? Um, so that's one of the things we're looking at and one of the things we think that CBDC can help in. Um, on top of that is it's the things that, you know, been fairly widely discussed before, you know, adapting to the decline of cash, right? And what does that mean in terms of, you know, cash acts as not on this, this anchor of the currency, but also this universal settlement mechanism, right? The fact that you can pretty much go out and spend it anywhere. And that actually gives people a lot of comfort. Um, as cash declines, is there a need for that still at universal settlement mechanism? And that's something we're investigating as well. Um, you know, we're, we want to support competition and efficiency and innovation in, in payments. Um, we're also avoiding the risks of uh, new forms of private money creation as well. Um, again, that stuff has been spoken about in a lot of kind of depth before. Um, and also, we, we understand there could be a lot of benefits when it, for CBDC when it comes to cross-border payments and trade. So they're the kind of main benefits that we're looking at for a CBDC. Um, there are also other ones around how does it impact inclusion and stuff like and, and, and those things like that and but there a lot of those are, are trade-offs and challenges that are quite hard and meeting makes my brain hurt most days but that's what we that's what we're here in the job for so um when it comes to the main challenges around a cbc i mean first of all this would be the first time that the bank of england has got involved in a retail payment system right uh so that would be that would be quite a big uh a step um, it's also a major technology project, which you know doesn't, which has its own risks and its own its own right, right. So, um, and then you kind of get the ones that the macroeconomic ones that people have, people have spoke about as well. You know, how will a CBDC impact um, balances and deposits in commercial banks, and if that was a large 
withdrawal of commercial bank deposits into CBDC, what would that do to um, credit in the wider economy from those banks? Uh, and how then, and you know, if if that affects credit, does that affect also the, the Bank of England's ability to implement its policy objectives around that monetary and financial stability, right? So that's kind of a issue. I think the main issue about this is, as there is no widespread uh, CB or CBC out there kind of in the wild being used, no one's really sure what the different uh, impacts and, and going to be how people are going to use it. What's the appetite, right? And also this may well change. These appetites may well change country to country. Each country has their own unique circumstances, unique kind of nuances of how their population uses money, right? You can see that where some people still prefer cash now, some people still, some countries still use prefer cards, some don't like credit, some do like credit, you know, countries are very different. And I wouldn't expect there to be one CBDC to fit all, right? I think that you will see differences based on countries and that makes it really hard uh, to predict what's going to happen when we launch a CBDC, but that's why we're doing the work now to, to try and mitigate those risks as much as we can. Yeah. Um, well, thanks for sharing, and I fully agree as well. Uh, something that I always tell my students when teaching CBDCs is precisely what you just uh, mentioned now, that uh, unlike, for example, cryptos, which are like um, universal, to put it this way, CBDCs will depend on each uh, central bank's uh, interests and policies, you know, which means that a CBDC doesn't need to look at all like another country's CBDC, you know, which, because each central bank is going to prioritize like certain aspects over others, like technically, but also uh, monetary policy-wise, etc. And yeah, 100%. You'll see that with privacy, right? Everyone's got exactly. different. I know later on, privacy is a great way of seeing how the different countries view it. Um, and also what the level of uh, what level of the government being involved in and seeing their transactions will their population um, tolerate, right? That's very again very different per per country. And one area where there uh, may be many differences as well as the the tech one. No, I mean as as you all know, of course, uh, CBDCs may or may not use, for example, uh, blockchain, or they may use this technology just. Uh, partially. So um, based on uh, the work you've done so far, uh, do you think that Digital Pound uh, would use or, or will use uh, blockchain? Oh, very leading controversial question, Ariel, there. Um, so no decision yet has been made on whether or not we'll use blockchain, right? The bank does not, uh, and myself as well on that one, the bank is not pro or anti-blockchain, right? So we think the blockchain has very promising features. Um, but the question is doing to use every aspect of it, right? So, um, you know, this, I mean, I'm not, you know, I've come from a technology background. I'm aware that this kind of whole conversation started because of the blockchain, but block, the original kind of blockchains, this may well be controversial for some people, but original kind of blockchains were designed to resolve with it, to work where there was an absence of trust, right? Now, central bank currencies to a certain degree are like the opposite of that, because in theory, everyone trusts the central bank, or they do at least at the moment. So, do you need element? Do you need something that mitigates, um, you know, the absence of trust, right? Or, or how do you handle that? Or where does that trust boundary lie? So that's where we we're looking at definitely choosing maybe the best parts of blockchain. Um, but again, I think what we're going to look to do is we're going to within that framework that I I told you earlier. You know, we're going to go through the consultation paper about the operational model and technical model we're going to do. 
we're going to look at a we're going to issue a technical specification that says this is the attributes you want um when we get responses back in that technical specification if the best answer that meets all of our technical specifications happens to be a blockchain great right i think we'll go over based on what meets the specifications um if it doesn't then it doesn't right and it might use it still might choose bits it still might use utxo from a blockchain element to do some transactions that may use the account model from uh, Ethereum. Um, we're going to let the technical requirements make those and, and the feedback make the, make the decision, right? So that's what I think is quite interesting. Um, I will say that it's, you know, it's incredibly, and I think I said, I, I watched your episode with Charles DeHorsey a couple of, a couple of weeks ago as well. I would say it's very interesting. It's, from our point of view, I think it'd be very unlikely that we'd ever launch it on a, on a public blockchain. And, um, but again, we're not ruling that out, but to say, you know, from a, from a kind of theoretical point of view, it's, it'd be interesting because this is such a rapidly evolving space. And if you, you know, take an example, if you were to, if you were to say, ask this question, you know, 18 months ago, you'd be like, well, what, what blockchain should you put a, a government central bank digital currency on? The answer probably would have been Ethereum, right? Because it was the most prevalent, it was the most well advanced. Um, but then we'd be stuck in a situation now where gas fees are, I think, at best $8 US. So you wouldn't want that to buy milk at the shop, right? So it's kind of the thing is, would you want to lot? So I think because we have that idea for financial and monetary stability, um, I think it would probably rule out putting it on a public blockchain. That's not to say there will not be a degree of interoperability. That would not say we wouldn't allow someone to uh, offer some kind of interoperability. But I say the core, the, the core ledger bit. I, if I, you know, I don't. Like I said we're not ruling it out, but I wouldn't say it's probably going to be on that just because of the decentralized governance pro, you know, programs and stuff like that. We couldn't guarantee that we'd be able to provide the stability that we need. Um, for to run a country's currency but uh like i said that's kind of a, a gut feeling but um we are going to wait and let's see the um the requirements so and like we that's not ruling out having a degree of interoperability it's just we're going to wait and we need to make sure there's also kind of a, a freer option for for the uk consumer mm -hmm. thank you for for sharing uh, before that, uh, we also discussed uh, privacy very briefly, which is actually a key concern like uh, globally, but especially in the West. Uh, as you know, in, in Europe, for example, the European Central Bank published last April 14 a comprehensive analysis of its public uh, consultation on a digital euro. As per this analysis, uh, what the public and professionals wanted the most from a digital euro was privacy, in a 43%. So, um, do you share this concern and how uh, do you think digital pound can make sure that privacy is properly respected whilst uh, leveraging the, the many advantages that CBDCs can offer? Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, that analysis from the, like I said, the, the poll from the ECB was obviously, yeah, very clear. Privacy was up number one. And, and privacy is not is non-negotiable, right? Um, but privacy doesn't mean anonymity uh, and there is definitely a difference there that we need to work on um, just in terms of how it works in the UK um, like I said we're, we're in a joint task force with Her Majesty's Treasury uh, so the central bank is kind of uh, semi-independent or independent in the UK um, so we are 
you know, the government through the Treasury is taking the lead on privacy matters within our UDK. They will define the policy because ultimately they're responsible for the, so that's the, the great British public on that one. Um, and then we will, we will implement it. There is a trade-off though, um, what's, there's so much interesting trade-off when it comes to privacy, right? Because when you look at things like AML, KYC, there's a trade-off through what can be achieved from a effectiveness of AML, KYC by being able to see the whole network and not just having the endpoints do AML, KYC. When you can see the whole network analysis enables you to do more efficient ways of that, but you're trading that off versus the consumer privacy and not want to let the government be able to see all your payments. Um, so there's a, there's a big trade-off there as well, but like I said, privacy is definitely not negotiable. One of the issues, one of the greatest lines I thought that was actually in the, the first discussion paper um, when I was actually reading it from outside the bank, is they said that privacy is a characteristic of the medium of cash, right? But the Bank of England doesn't actually have a regulatory requirement to preserve privacy, right? Having said that, we also don't have a requirement to make money off the data, right? So we don't go kind of a catch me too here in that we might actually um, make cash payments may end up being more private than traditional payments because we don't have to make money off the off the data. And therefore that may prove ultimately to be, to be a competitive edge for CBDC. But it's having this trade-off. And I think what actually would be a really good thing out of this is out of this CBDC debate is actually creating a a genuine conversation about how, what data is actually needed in payments. I don't think that people understand how much data is in traditional payments across cards and bank payments now. Um, so it might well be if one of the good things is we have that conversation out there and work out what is needed um, versus what is overkill and what are the uses for that. And I think that conversation will, will be welcome. Mm -hmm. Indeed, indeed. And well, now that we are uh, running out of time, I wanted to, to wrap up this uh, very interesting discussion talking about, uh, well, stable coins and, and cryptocurrencies. No, I mean, initially, uh, CBDCs represented, or they still represent, uh, depending on the country, a reaction no, from central banks to, to propose uh, new forms of uh, privately issued digital money, such as uh, stable coins. So uh, what do you think that CBDCs will mean for the future? of stable coins on the one hand, and on the other one, uh, what about the other uh, cryptos uh, other than stable coins? How will CBDCs uh, interact uh, with them? Yeah, so I think it's, you know, I don't think, we don't see it as kind of mutually exclusive, right? If you have CBDC, you can't have stable coins, you can't have crypto, right? So we were very clear in the, the discussion paper on the future forms of money that um, there's definitely a place for stable coins separate to CBDCs. Um, but they should be regulated and have the same, they should be regulated properly and have the same privacy and regulations and confidence as uh, commercial bank money, right? So, um, you know, we generally try and follow the rule in the UK of the same risk, same regulatory outcome uh, across this. So if they, if they represent the same as commercial bank money, they should be treated the same as that. Um, but the stable coins, to, to the point we are making earlier, there's an argument for stable coins because you know, like I said, if, if, if CBDCs are not going to go on public blockchains, that's an if, right? Um, you know, that means is there a place where stable coins can still go to, right? There's a place they can go to launch into new uh, blockchains, which obviously those networks are springing up quite fast, right? And that may well be a better use of the private in outcome. But we, are, we, should, we believe they should be properly regulated um, and that they should, they should be able to sit alongside uh, CBDCs 
um, not necessarily interchangeably, but um, they have their they have their own they have their own use cases, and and we yeah that's they should we don't believe CBDCs will replace them. And it's the same with crypto, right? The crypto, the reason crypto exists now, and the reason why crypto will continue to exist now is different to why we'd be looking at doing a CBDC. <clears throat> so so like you know one of the major things for Bitcoin is the limited supply, and that drives some it drives its value. That's obviously different to a central bank digital currency. Um, people are also using cryptos as a, as a hedge or a speculation or as an investment. So again, we see that it's very different. Obviously, CBDC won't be an investment. It's always going to be worth a pound, right? So it's not going to go up or down on that one, right? So, um, uh, and that's to a certain degree sometimes why the Bitcoin moniker necessarily isn't helpful, um, which is what the, the press has called it uh, over here in the UK, that the Bitcoin, because it conditions people to think of the CBDC as Bitcoin, which was value will go up and down. And, and we're like, no, it's it's going to be a pound, always a pound. Sorry, sorry, sorry to disappoint you there. So, um, but, you know, crypto also has a reason for you know, this distributed governance protocols where they can fund open source projects. I, we don't think that's going to be changing. I think the regulation may come into that, but we don't see that as, see that as completely different to, we say it's completely different to CBDC. It has its use cases. It's a it's a fascinating piece of technology, um, but again, different to you know widespread payment mechanism, which is what we're and you know use of current in a national currency, which is what we're looking at for for CBDC. Mm -hmm. I see that's that's very interesting. Uh, well, I mean, unfortunately, with that, we need to conclude our uh, our discussion. I would like uh, to thank you, Danny, for uh, coming to my show, and thank, of course. Uh, Bank of England as well for for uh, your support to my podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to get to learn to learn uh, well so much from you about uh, the Bank of England, about uh, what the Bank of England is doing on the area of fintech, and especially about uh, well, CBDCs and the future digital uh, pound, which, as we know, it's still um, at a very early stage. No, I mean we are still at a mm -hmm. research stage, same as most CBDCs in the world, but still it's great to to well to get to. To hear from you more about um, about the idea, the concept. It's been an absolute uh, pleasure. It's been a great discussion. And well, as I said, uh, well, thank you very much for your time. No problem, Zara. Thank you very much for having me. It's been uh, it's been an enjoyable way to start the day. And well, uh, to all my listeners, uh, thank you very much for listening to to this podcast. And please stay tuned for the next episodes. Thank you very much. See you soon. Bye. Yeah.